You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. To get a sense of the direction and possible outcome of what we are seeing in Venezuela, I placed a call to Christopher Sabatini, a friend and fellow graduate of the University of Virginia, where he earned his doctorate in government. He's a lecturer of international relations and public policy at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia. He's a non-resident fellow at the James A. Baker Institute at Rice University. And he's the founder and executive director of Global Americans. Chris has published numerous articles on Latin America, U.S. foreign policy, democratization, and economic development. And as you might imagine, he has been in particularly high demand as the situation in Venezuela has escalated as well as deteriorated. I'm very grateful that he took time last Friday to share his insights. Welcome, Chris. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Jim. It's always a a pleasure to be with a fellow Wahoo, so thank you. The lack of representatives from much of the world community at Nicola Maduro's inauguration last month on January 11th underscored the generally accepted fraud of his election and the illegitimacy of his presidency. But I'm wondering, what was the spark that enabled Juan Guaido to launch this current revolt? Well, there's a number of factors that played into it. The first one was actually domestic to Venezuela. There have been a series of clearly fraudulent and internationally condemned elections in Venezuela, the latest one being the one you mentioned, Jim, in May 2018, the re-election of Nicolás Maduro, which met none of the standards of international elections. Really, the only elected body that has any legitimacy is the National Assembly which the opposition has a majority block of votes in. And their leadership rotates every couple months. In the last round, the, the one, it was a turn of one party, uh, a popular will party, and they elected Juan Guaido as leader of their party and therefore the president of the National Assembly. And citing Article 233 of the Constitution, which says that if the president is incapacitated and cannot assume office, then the president of the National Assembly becomes the interim president of the country. And they cited that article and said, in effect, that Juan Guaido, as a representative of the only democratic body in the country, was therefore the interim president of the country because Nicolás Maduro's election was was so fraudulent. And that's how it came about. It came about on, on January 23rd, which is a historic date for Venezuelans. It's when they threw off the the former dictator in 1958. So it was a very historic moment. And that's where you got the moment where you had two competing presidents, uh, one through an elected through a national assembly, other through a clearly fraudulent election, which more than 50 countries uh, have refused to confirm. What I've noticed is that Iran, Russia, China, even Turkey, they've not provided support to the United Nations on this important issue. So how does that affect the situation? Well, that's a good question, Jim. And so you have right there the breakdown, if you will, of the new world order, liberal democratic governments and the illiberal governments of China, Russia, Iran, and the rest. And they've always been longtime allies of Maduro and, in fact, have helped him economically, bought his oil, lent him money. But what's curious, of course, as you're implying, is that what was originally a domestic issue, perhaps a regional issue, certainly, has become a geopolitical issue with implications not just for the United States and the bloc of 60 or so countries that have recognized Guaido, but for the larger sort of meaning of the, the world order. Uh, on one side, the rogues gallery of Russia, China, Turkey, Iran, Syria, and the like. And on the other, 
the defenders of the traditional world order. And for that reason right now in the United Nations, in the Security Council, the United States has tried to present a resolution recognizing Guaido as a president urging some UN measure to introduce humanitarian assistance. Right now, and I'm sure you'll ask about it, there's a huge humanitarian crisis within Venezuela. But unfortunately, the Security Council will block it because Russia has offered its own counter resolution and it has a veto power that rejects the idea of any intervention in, in Venezuela. Again, what was once a domestic democratic issue now becoming a looming geopolitical issue. And I do want to ask you about the humanitarian crisis and also about the stalemate that we're seeing on the border. But give us a sense of how serious what we're seeing on the border is, the humanitarian crisis, starvation, lack of medical supplies, etc. To give you an idea, first of all, the levels of poverty in what was once the richest country in South America is now one of the poorest. Levels of poverty, 80% right now in Venezuela. The economy, since about 2013, has lost 50%. In other words, it has contracted by half. Inflation, this year alone, I would write this down, the zeros would swim in front of your eyes. The, the inflation rate is expected to reach 10 million percent. No joke. Venezuelans, on average, have lost, involuntarily, 23 pounds of weight because of malnutrition, lack of access to food. Basic foodstuffs are unavailable. Medicines are unavailable. Infant mortality rates have skyrocketed. Diseases such as smallpox and measles have come back. There are rates of HIV, AIDS that are reoccurring. And as a result, Venezuelans are fleeing. More than 3.3 million Venezuelans have left the country. And that includes more than 1.1 million who are now living, perhaps even for the rest of their lives, in Colombia. And the poorer people, I assume, are going to Colombia, and wealthiers are going to different countries like the United States. Precisely. The wealthier go to the United States. There's a neighborhood outside Miami now that's called Doral, and they call it Dorazuela, because there are so many Venezuelans that have uh, moved there now. So the exodus has been a huge brain drain. It will serve as a, a tremendous drag on the country uh, whenever the time comes to rebuild. And it's, and it's not stopping. And in many ways, it serves the interest of the... Maduro government, because a lot of these people would oppose the government. But their only solution, given the dire circumstances, is to leave and try to seek a better life. And so it's been somewhat of a release valve for the country. And you mentioned now uh, the humanitarian assistance. The United States has sent about $20 million worth of assistance through the U.S. Agency for International Development. Most of it's now on the border of Venezuela, Colombia. But in, in, this is the odd twist of this is that the Maduro government has set up roadblocks. It's actually put 18 wheels across highways and mobilized the military to prevent that humanitarian assistance, which is food and basic medicines, from entering Venezuela. So here's a man who's not only destroyed the country, he is preventing any form of assistance that could alleviate his own citizens' suffering. We also saw those pictures last week of the large trucks blocking the border. And it's really the question of seeing whether or not the United States needs to get involved and would there be military intervention and what does that mean? Given the history of U.S. intervention in the region, the Trump administration has alluded to this. It's been criticized by other neighbors as a not particularly wise idea. Um, I think one possibility which is on the table is, is that some sort of multilateral force that the U.S. does not lead that creates some form of a safe zone in which this humanitarian assistance can be delivered. Because above all, this is about the Venezuelan people. We're talking about geopolitics. We're talking about 
the role of the U.S. and Maduro, but you know, Venezuelan people are starving, and there there needs to be some way that doesn't necessarily have the U.S. fingerprints on it, in which their suffering can be alleviated. Everything that I've read seems to indicate that the military really holds the key. That's absolutely right. Effectively, the, the Maduro government and Chavez, his predecessor, have effectively closed off all institutionalized channels of dissent and alternation of power. Elections have been thoroughly corrupted. They've created a parallel constituent assembly. The Supreme Court is packed. When opposition governments have won local and, and state governorships, governments, they have created parallel. So, you know, really the hope is the military will swing away from Maduro and support Guaido. The problem with that is that the military has also been thoroughly politicized. Just under Maduro's term, since 2013, he has promoted to the rank of general 1,000 generals. And there are allegedly more generals right now in Venezuela than there are in all of the NATO countries. And that's a pretty plumb post if you're a Venezuelan military officer. That's great inflation to the extreme. Exactly. Another form of inflation. And, um, and they get plumb posts. They get to control the narcotics trafficking routes from Colombia. They get to sell food in black markets. They get all sorts of perks. And so uh, it's going to be difficult to get the, that level of defection from the military. Now, the commanders and the uh, conscripted officers and foot soldiers they're living a tough time. They're getting anywhere uh, about $8 a month in terms of their salaries. And so they could possibly defect, but their leaders are fully in bed uh, with this government. And so it's going to be a tough call. Your colleague Hunter Carter at the Global Americans wrote an interesting piece a week or so ago, Venezuela, questions for the day after. Does Guaido really have the personality, the charisma to lead the country uh, forward? And also, do you think the Venezuelans who have left the country will come back? Well, several good questions there. The first one is Guaido himself. He does have charisma. He's a uh, young leader, 35 years old from the interior. Unlike many of the opposition leaders, he doesn't come from a very privileged background, which makes him a lot more appealing to moderate Chavistas and the poor that had previously backed Chavez and Maduro. And he also comes very well equipped. He, he actually he studied as well as along with a number of the new generation of opposition leaders at the Harvard Kennedy School. We have to admit it's not University of Virginia, but most of us have heard of it. It's not bad. UVA of the North. Exactly. Exactly. He does have a plan. There's been a careful process of thinking that's actually taken part in a large part through Ricardo Hausman at the Kennedy School for rebuilding Venezuela. So that is in place. The second thing is sort of the genius of this new plan, should it work, is that Guaido would only be an interim president until new elections can be called. And so that has alleviated a lot of the divisiveness of the opposition, because they, it's not an either-or uh, question for them. But last is the question was whether Venezuelans will come back, and most people say they won't, and in large part because there isn't much to come back to, and it goes to the point that Hunter raises very effectively is the need for some form of rebuilding of the private sector and industry in Venezuela that can attract these people back to the country, because the brain drain has been tremendous, from doctors to engineers to teachers to, you know, whatever you may have, have left the country and bring them back, given the dire situation, will be very difficult. And many of them have come to Texas and are well-established here. Precisely. And, and again, what awaits them back in Venezuela is not going to be an easy haul. Before I let you go to begin your weekend, I don't know if you've had a chance yet or if you watched the president's speech where he declared an emergency and it looks like maybe a wall is going to be built. Also, I wonder, how will his speech and his actions be perceived in Central America? 
I don't think it will be received well. I think, honestly, this has been a contrived crisis that has served his uh, campaign promises and his political base very well. But, you know, I like to say this. I was one time talking to a very close associate of a former president who said that when this president met with uh, leaders from Latin America, the one issue that came up consistently, it didn't matter whether it was the president of Uruguay or the president of Guatemala or the president of Mexico, was immigration. Because throughout the region, there's a very deep sense of solidarity and connectedness. And many, many citizens of Latin America see how the United States treats and talks about uh, citizens from their countries as an insult to all or as a reflection of all. And it's a real shame that it's been treated in such a difficult way. And I think there's a real need to tone down the rhetoric on both sides. Because yes, indeed, there are problems in our immigration laws, but referring to it as a national emergency of the like of, say, post 9-11 is, I think, a serious error and a serious insult to the citizens south of the U.S. border. I certainly agree with you. Chris, before you go, how can our listeners keep in touch with you and follow your analysis? Well, thank you very much. The, uh, so the website is theglobalamericans.org. I'm also on Twitter, which is at Chris Sabatini. And happy, you know, we have an open policy, too. There's a famous New York Times reporter, Scott Reston, who once said that U.S. citizens will do everything for Latin America except read about it and understand it. We hope to change that. So we have an open policy. So please try to engage in a dialogue with us. We welcome all people who care about Latin America. We welcome all opinions and ideas. It is, as Donald Trump's speech, for better or worse, reflected, we do share a common destiny. And I think it's very important that we sort of understand uh, what that is and how we interact. Have a great weekend, and thanks again for being our guest on Global IQ Minute. No, thank you very much, Jim. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.